The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Monday. It's the right hook, and it's news talk. George Hook here, and uh, I've got some of the things that really got me going today on today's programme. I'm joined now by Tom Boland, Chief Executive of the Higher Education Authority and a member of the expert group to examine the funding of higher education. Tom, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Now, Happy to be here. The... the the story that's making all the headlines is the question of loans for students. Indeed. But that's not the only proposal. No. There so are, what are the three? It's, it's jumping the gun to go to loans. Uh, the, there are three. Uh, one is uh, that the government uh, pays the full cost of higher education. Sure. In other words, we scrap the existing €3,000 fee. The other is that we keep the €3,000 fee and government contributes uh, something extra. And the third option is that uh, students pay, uh, but pay through an income contingent loan scheme, as well as government continuing to provide a significant level of funding. Now, um, did the expert group say one was a better idea than the other? or No, it didn't. What it set out to do was to say what are the pros and cons of all of them. And, I, and, and, and underlying all of them, by the way, I should mention, George, that the group also recommended that uh, enterprise business should pay a contribution also, as they also are one of the key beneficiaries from higher education. Now, if we look at the loan thing, and obviously everybody's jumping up and down, and I'm not going to zero in on that, right? It, the previous two are, are fairly obvious in the sense that that's what the government has been doing in some shape or form anyway. Um, so if they continue, it'll be sort of tweaking it. Whereas third one would actually be a major change. Yes, George. And uh, what's why would we go for that? Because essentially we can't pay for our education anymore, and well, now somebody else has to pay for it. Yeah, well, somebody has to pay for it. Sure. Because nothing is free. Yeah. And I just heard the Taoiseach on your newscast saying uh, that what he wanted to do was to secure the future of our country. That's what, he, yeah. what, that's what he said. And this is about securing the future of our country. The higher education system needs somewhere in the order of a billion euro extra by 2030 to, to cope with, uh, with demographic demand and to address some of the cuts that have already taken place. Unless we do it, the, f- the, the future of our country is not secure. All right, but, and I accept that, right? But what you're assuming are you not in uh, your, whoever pays for it, right? You're kind of assuming that everybody should go to university because we almost have universal third-level education. Now, once upon a time, we didn't. We had four universities, so only a privileged minority went to university. But now every Tom, Dick, and Harry goes to university who maybe shouldn't be in university in the first place because they're studying remedial arithmetic or gardening or yeah. running gymnasia. A lot, a lot of issues there, George. But first of all, the current participation rate of school leavers is about 53 or 54 percent. And nobody would ever suggest that everybody should go into higher education. In fact, what we do need to do is to have a, a, a decent proportion in higher education, some in further education and some in, in apprenticeship, particularly the new apprenticeship model. The Germans but, do but, that. But, but, but the, yeah, they do indeed. But one of the key things uh, to point out is, and you know, nothing like a bit of evidence in policymaking, all the evidence uh, in, indicates that we need more higher education graduates. We do need the apprentices also, and we need some further education. But we don't need any more managers of gymnasia, I put there. 
well, I don't know what the what, no, what, the, what, what the skill is based on you, the It's probably yeah. reasonable that at. you want nuclear physicists yes. or whatever, yes. but it's moot that you want uh, degrees which which now proliferate because, unfortunately, uh, what third-level institutions are in now is just putting bums at seats. So I uh, well, wouldn't necessarily no, education uh, No, 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 no. The higher education is intimately connected with providing the skills needs for the economy. And, OK, I know what you're getting at. You're talking, you're, you're, you're probably more likely talking about more scientists and more ICT skills and managers of gyms and, and, and less, less humanities, say. But, uh, you know... It, Kids and parents make their choices, and you can't force people right. into particular. No, uh, lest you have me here as some kind of luddite. Like I'm all in favour of people doing history. In fact, I'm appalled at, for instance, Rory Quinn taking history out as a as a compulsory subject. So I'm, I'm no, don't beat the humanities with me. I'm all in favour of that. But let's go to loans, right? It isn't the fundamental mistake in our system. That rich and poor alike get the same deal. And isn't that wrong? Well, rich and poor alike do not get the same deal as matters stand. And it is wrong because what is happening, in fact, currently is that the poor, through their taxes, who do not participate in higher education, are actually actually subsidising the rich who do participate almost to the extent of 100%. So the current system is broken and it is by no means a good model to go forward with. All, all right, well, you get universal agreement that the system's broken, I think. It's yes, fair to from, say. A, from a funding point of view. But what we don't want to do, surely, is, like, I, there's, a, there's a natural reluctance that a 22-year-old comes out of college. Now, I know you link it to income and you link it to this, that and the other thing, that it con- somebody comes out of college with a debt of, for argument's sake, 20,000 or 22 years of age. No matter how you dress it up. And I have a lot of experience of this, having worked in America. And, and I've worked with people who couldn't afford to go for their lunch because they were paying back student loans. I worked with people in their 40s who were still paying back student loans and, it, it you know, it meant they couldn't buy a house or, or a pile of things. Isn't the idea of creating debt for our citizens fundamentally a bad idea? Well, well, in some circumstances, debt can be good if you're, if you're investing in something. The US is not a good model though, George, because the US does not have an income contingent loan scheme. In the US, your loan is repayable immediately yeah. as, as, as a mortgage or any, as, a, as a personal yeah. loan. What, we are t- what, what this report is talking about as one of three options is that it would be, as you said, payment would be contingent on earning enough to be able to pay and then only, only paying a proportion of what, of what it is uh, you're earning. So it's a much it's a much more manageable and a much more tolerable uh, way to pay for your education. All right. Now, I couldn't go to college in 1959 when I did the leaving because my mother couldn't afford the 50 quid to go to UCC. I don't know what 50 quid in 59 relates to now. But essentially, university was privilege. Okay? People who went to university were essentially privileged and could afford it. And we want to get rid of that. But shouldn't... I pay more for my children's education or Michael O'Leary or whoever. Shouldn't they pay more for their children's education than somebody else? Well, the, 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 an income contingent loan scheme is predicated not on the parents' earning. It's, uh, it's predicated on the graduate's earning. Oh, I accept earning. that, but, but like Michael O'Leary's kids won't need a loan because he, he can afford to pay for it. Do yes. you know what I mean? Yes. So shouldn't we make 
shouldn't I don't like the idea of universality whether it's children's allowances or anything else shouldn't rich people who can afford it not get the help from the state in, 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 well, there, there wouldn't necessarily be a help from the state in the context of income contingent loan, because okay. uh, unless there is a subsidy, of course, because it is the graduate who pays, not the parent. Right. One area, though, where there is where there is very significant inequality currently, say in in areas like high high earning professions, uh, medicine being an obvious yeah. one, they pay those students pay exactly the same fee as your as your history graduate. And, now, I know and that's unfair. Y- yes, and I know you don't like the American example, but part of reason why, for instance, medical costs are so high in America is these guys come out of medical school with loans equal to the gross national product of Nicaragua so they then have to charge huge fees because they're paying those loans back and we don't want to create that choice. We absolutely do not and some do but fully 70% of US graduates have a loan from yeah. from state from state schools uh, and uh, private not for profit schools have a loan less than thirty thousand dollars. Too much is is said of this vast uh, weight of loans on American graduates. Those uh, those graduates who have tens of thousands, so even in some cases hundreds of thousands of loans, are graduates from the very Tony. Private universities. Yeah, but if you got, if you or I had got the opportunity to go to Harvard in our day, we would have grabbed it with both hands. But in today's terms, it would have cost us three hundred thousand for our period Un- at Harvard. Unless I don't want the fees, but it's probably very high. Unless, of course, as a lot of students do, they get scholarships. Yeah, and the, those private colleges like Harvard have huge foundations yeah. where they support a lot of students. Well, now you, it, 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 this presumably was part of what you were talking about in the expert group if you now bring business in they are going to contribute to that because they are the ultimate beneficiaries uh, like for instance I mean I shouldn't do it but, but hypothetically Price Waterhouse Coopers uh, all their graduates are coming into them who become their accountants and their partners so they've a vested interest in having good kids coming out of university you're absolutely right they are one of uh, three groups that benefit from higher education the, the business the state generally and students uh, and the argument is why shouldn't they make some uh, and what is proposed is a very modest contribution uh, to the cost of uh, education maybe it shouldn't be modest well on the other hand I think you have to be careful that uh, you don't uh, distort what's happening in business and in what's happening in taxation. The the quantum of it, the actual amount of it, would be a matter to be decided in in in, okay. in final design. But but shouldn't with something we don't do if if. You know, we don't see uh, the Tom Boland gymnasium or the George Hook swimming pool because if we give the university a ton of money to build that, taxation, we don't get a big deal on it. Whereas in America, if a guy gives a ton of money to build something, he gets a break. I absolutely think, agree with you that philanthropy uh, should be a part of the overall funding of higher education. It is a significant uh, in, enough amount in the universities in Ireland, but nowhere on a, on a scale with the United States. And in fact, I don't think any other country in the developed world has the same scale. Nobody we US. could encourage but, it. But, but, but I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, uh, it was quite a few years ago, the HEA did a report where one of the recommendations we made was to tie some level of ta- taxation support to philanthropy. Uh, there are some measures at the moment, but I think they could be they could be better. 
so I would certainly see that as part of a, an overall funding solution. And it's mentioned in the report. All right. But isn't it, and you're Chief Executive of the Higher Education Authority, John Bolton, isn't it a fact, though, that um, the, the then Minister for Education and TD for Dunleer at that time, uh, Minister Bannock, the idea of just giving free education to every Tom, Dick and Harry was something that ultimately was going to be doomed to failure as the growth in the number of students was obviously going to be exponential. I think it was well-intentioned at the time and there were issues to do with covenants and taxation avoidance schemes and so on. And also, I think the minister at the time was probably well-motivated by a sense that free edu- free third-level, sorry, yeah, free third-level education abolishing fees would enhance participation. Times have changed yeah, and, but, uh, and, and if circumstances you, okay, have changed. But if you, you, take, might, you wouldn't do it now, I think. No, but if you take a fellow like me, say, yeah. right, I'd now have three kids, well, you know what I mean, hypothetically, yeah. I have three kids yeah. and I think, well, these guys, they're going to cost me 30,000 each, but they're not going to cost me a dime for third level. So what I'll do is... I'll spend 30000 a year in sending them to a private school where they have a better chance of getting into university in the first place. Isn't that the logical thing that happens yeah, then? Yeah, but there are far, far more people who who have the three kids and who, who, who are borrowing from the credit union to send their wow. kids to university and who don't have the money to send them to private school. I mean, we can't through uh, we, we, we can't solve all these ills, I no. suppose, of society. But it's good that but, you're there. Like yeah. it's, it's, The government can't keep paying. We know that. It's extraordinarily difficult. I won't say they can't, but it's extraordinarily difficult. And and ultimately, somebody has to pay. And ultimately, we all benefit. All right. Tom Boland, Chief Executive of the Higher Education Authority. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I have two voices for you now which you might like to listen to. One, of course, the British Prime Minister, soon not to be the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, and the current Taoiseach, Inda Kenny. Let's listen. My objective has always been to secure the future of our country. That is what the people expect of their Taoiseach and of their government. And that is what the Fine Gael people around the country expect of their leader. And that's what I intend to deliver for them. Obviously, with these changes, we now don't need to have a prolonged period of transition. And so tomorrow, I will chair my last cabinet meeting. On Wednesday, I will attend the House of Commons for Prime Minister's questions. And then after that, uh, I expect to go to the palace and offer my resignation. So we'll have a new Prime Minister in that building behind me uh, by Wednesday evening. Now, I'm joined by Frank Flannery, himself, of course, a, a key strategist uh, for Fine Gael. Frank, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Uh, two key differences there. Like Cameron loses Brexit and he's gone. Uh, uh, the, wor- in Nepal, the worst Fine Gael election ever, probably, and the Taoiseach is still there. British do it differently. Well, circumstances are also a bit different, but I have to say, um, I thought Cameron made a... A, a terrible error in many ways in having that referendum or committing himself to it a year or two ago to try and solve an internal party dispute. But having said that, once he had it and lost it, he was admirably decisive. And yeah. uh, lucky, I think, as well, that their election process, we could have gone on for another <laughs> six weeks, suddenly collapsed. So they ended, up with, lucky, uh, yeah. they ended up with a good candidate and suddenly they have a prime minister, their second woman prime minister in recent yeah, they're times. they're in a good place. And they're very, they're in a good place. So sometimes the ball hops with you. 
And this case was slightly differently. Now, again, a bad election, uh, very badly run. I'm not blaming him for that, but the party as a whole really got the politics and the communications of the election wrong, which left them in an odd position after the election. But explain to me, like, you know how it works. Um, Taoiseachs have advisors. They're surrounded by advisors. And I I hear like that. He took a flyer on proposing an All-Ireland Forum, which the union has dumped all over him uh, the, the issue of appointing uh, or the former minister for health uh, the former minister O'Reilly as deputy leader and James Riley. and it seems almost every day that there's a, an error following this government and governments do become error prone the, the Irish water I mean I could you don't need me to tell you I go on and on every day but anyway just I'll reference those, but they they have been seriously overworked, I think. First of all, after the election, it would have been an ideal time for Andy Kenny to uh, issue his resignation on the grounds that they had a really bad election, lost novel of seats and so forth. But the irony of the circumstances he found himself in was that he really didn't have that option because Fine Gael turned back to be the largest party in the Dole, no natural majority. Somebody had to try and put a government together because that's really what the collective will was, not just in Parliament but everywhere. And it fell to him to do it. And let's be fair about this. He went about it in a cohesive and in a solid way. It took a long time enormous patience, the patience of Job, one might say, but finally got it done. Now, so that is the circumstance he's now leading that kind of a government which is totally dependent on Fianna Fáil for its continued existence at all times and uh, is made up of some independence and Fine Gael. Very, very historically okay. difficult task. Now, in that context, I think the media now are beginning to parse and analyse his every thought and his every action. And unfairly? I would think both unfairly and with a negative perspective. He now, unfortunately, has become the next leader for the chop. And I think there is a bit of a pack out there hunting for him, George. So whatever he does is subject to that kind of analysis. And it's a difficult position for him to find himself in. Not one of his choosing, really. And, and the other thing I will say is this. He's been leader 14 years. Uh, he's not the first leader in Ireland or in other countries who has found the business of getting out being even more difficult than the business of getting in. I, Managing I, your exit is a classically right. difficult task. Yeah. But having said that, um, you know, that the media out there are united in sort of going for, which may well be true, in fact, there's certainly, there's not a lot of uh, uh, media in favour of him, but his chief whip or a backbencher down in Kerry goes on Radio Kerry this morning. Uh, that does, like, Fine Gael is not united behind him. There seem to be tons of people willing, if the media want them, to talk to the media. Yeah. Well, I have, uh, having expressed sympathy for the Taoiseach in what he's trying to do, uniquely difficult circumstances, I have great sympathy for the members of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party as well, because here's a party that has lost 26 seats and has no control over when the election next election is going to be called. That really is in the hands of the other side of the House now. And uh, 
And they know that unless they hit the next election in reasonably good shape, God knows what's going to happen to anybody. So they are nervous as well. They've got to get used to it. I think we have to find out what this concept of new politics in Ireland is. This is the first time it has been tried in the history of the 95 years of our of our uh, parliamentary history or 94 years, whatever it is. And uh, does it mean that the opposition will not unfairly take advantage of the government and call an election at a time? Well, that's look, exactly look, and the so point. On. Yeah. So consequently, it is important for Fine Gael and the Kennedy is not going to be leader for the next election. It is critically important for the party. And I think for the whole process that a new Fine Gael leader be solidly established, whoever it be, well in advance of the next general election. And when you don't know when the next general election is going to be, that is a kind of a circumstance that causes nervousness to put right, it very mildly. You, you, you could have had an election a couple of weeks ago uh, when Ross Halligan and, and McGrath said, we want to break ranks and vote for McWallace's bill. Now, say for argument's sake, the teacher said, no, you can't. Uh, you're either out of here or you're voting with us. Had he taken that step? Now, he's been pilloried for doing the opposite, but had he taken that step, it could have been an yeah. election. So how the, the time timing of the election, you've, made, you've hit nail in the head, is not Fine Gael's decision. Fine Fáil will do it when they're at their absolute weakest. But yes. if Fine Fáil did next Friday, Ender would be the leader. So surely right. That's right. Fine Gael have to do it sooner rather than later. <laughs> there's a huge, logi- there's a huge, lo- huge logic in, in that regard. Now, if you have the confidence that, that Fine Fáil really does espouse new politics, and the new politics means that when you say you're going to give the government three budgets, you do it irrespective of how weak they are and how strong you are. You patiently wait until the end of the third budget before you make any move. Uh, And and, uh, I'm not so sure that I or anybody else in Fine Gael or any other party would think that human nature has, in Irish political circles, has so miraculously transformed itself that this kind of almost angelic, virtuous circle is now upon us. I'm not sure that that is the case. No, it's not a question you're not sure. You know darn well it's not. So therefore, the, the, the thing about this is, given that, and the only example we've had is the three independents, but there's a budget comes up and then yes. somebody says well as a matter of conscience I can't vote for a budget that puts you know takes a shilling off the old age pension as Fine Gael famously did 70 years ago or whatever you know when he says oh no I can't vote in that conscience down mm. comes the government yes I, I, I think um, by the way on the um, the recent uh, vote in the government there was only one vote there which was really uh, damaging, and that was Shane Ross's vote because Shane Ross is a member of the cabinet. Yes. Uh, the the other is Halligan and uh, McGrath. And McGrath are not; they are junior ministers. They're not members of the cabinet. So consequently, that was the extent of that. And I think I gathered from what Minister Ross said, he's kind of taken that point on board himself as well and indicated that there was there is an issue there that has to be looked at. The principle of cabinet 
collective responsibility is a constitutional principle and has to be respected. But there are now, uh, as there are now actually a, a, a plethora of Irish Boris Johnsons around the place who are promising the people uh, a whole magical new yellow brick road. Mm-hmm. There are, and such a yellow brick road is is not really there outside Hollywood um, imaginative um, uh, manifestations. So government in Ireland now needs extraordinarily cool heads. And what I would say to the people in Fine Gael, at the highest level being the top grouping that... Whoever they are. ...who are going to be the present leadership and maybe the next leadership and all of that... And the entire membership of the Parliamentary Party, which numbers about 61 or, the, or that kind of a number, they need to be very strategic and very cool. And they don't have any manual telling them what to do because this circumstance hasn't yeah, arrived but, before. Yeah, but hold on, well, you can't get 61 men and women to make a decision. But All the backbenchers are interested in is, will I hold my seat in the, in next, the next election? election. They Indeed. don't care about the and, economy. And by the way, that's a legitimate aspiration okay. on their part. They do care about the economy because unless that's going well, they're not going to hold right. their seat. They do care about good government and strong leadership because unless that's going well, also, their chances are minimised. So they are serious and they are positive people. But I think what they have to do is to actually embrace in their own thinking and planning the conundrum that they have. Well, if you and, and, and plan it. Don't let it just happen to them. Actually plan it. Come up with the solution they want and then have that implemented. A bit like what Cameron did. He had a conundrum when he saw the way the vote went. He was remarkably and admirably decisive. And sometimes bravery brings its own good fortune. And he's come out with a result which is probably excellent for the United Kingdom. So you, what you're saying, therefore, seems that seems like a brilliant idea. Uh, you're suggesting that teachers should say, I'm gone on the 1st of September. I'm not saying that the Taoiseach should say that. I'm saying that the party led by the Taoiseach should have a plan which they collectively agree. But when they arrive at that plan, these famous 61, is every The plan might be devised in a number somewhat smaller than 61. Would it? It would. It would ultimately be agreed by the 61. Who'd be presented with a fair complete a good, told a, good a good strategic way forward, which would offer them and the party the best possible opportunity to do well in the next election and continue their work for the Irish economy. Yeah, but there is no uh, leader in waiting. Like uh, there uh, is no, there is no single leader in waiting. There are a number of yeah. leaders in waiting. Yeah, and as there were in the UK, there were five or six of them. But once you start that battle going, it resolves itself sometimes quite easily and quickly, and mostly very sensibly. Yeah. You still think it should happen sooner rather than later? I, I think, uh, given, I mean, the Taoiseach was speaking earlier today and he's talking about being wholly focused on the work at hand and so on, and he's listed all the various things that are on hand, and he's 100% right. He would have my total support on that. I think, however, that Fine Gael is also a realistic party which wants to 
continue to develop the Irish society and economy as they've been doing and they will not want to be decimated or wiped out in the next general election. They will rather want to do extremely well and continue to lead government after the next general election. For that, they need to have their internal affairs fully in order and they've got to look at when are the biggest danger points when the opposition might cause a general election upon us and make sure we are ready in every respect for that to happen and that includes having new leadership in place. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie I'm joined now by Dublin City Councillor, Labour Party uh, indeed, Dermot Lacey. Councillor Lacey, welcome to the programme. Hello George, thanks very much. Uh, Look, I I don't need to tell you that homelessness is a story, but we are hearing now that the Chief Executive, Owen Keegan, is actually suggesting that people might be rendering themselves homeless in order to jump the queue. First and foremost, do you believe that's a valid position to take? I don't know, and that's the honest answer, George. I mean, people say it anecdotally. I mean, I've heard other councillors say it. I've heard officials say it. Um, I, I have never personally come across it, but... I suppose you have to look at it in the context of what's happening. The previous Minister for the Environment gave a direction that uh, 50% of all housing allocations at the time would be allocated to people who are homeless. And certainly that did help to deal with the situation whereby people at the time were homeless, at the time the measure came in. And it, it, it had the effect of speeding up the refurbishment of the empty flats, the voids, as they're called, because along with the direction, the minister also made sure we had the money to um, refurbish those places. The vast bulk of the empty flats, other than ones that are sort of either need major work or are part of regeneration programs, have now been repaired. There would be some just normal turnover. So what the manager are saying, as I understand it, is that, look, as we have dealt with the immediate problem uh, with the resources we had available to us, uh, we now have to try and sort of get back to the normal allocation in the normal sort of way. Now, when we say that people render themselves homeless, let's take Owen Keegan, the, the chief executive at Dublin City Council. Let's take his point. So, so like, it's valid, right? Uh, let's accept that, hypothetically. So, Dermot, uh, we're living in a house somewhere or an apartment somewhere or whatever, and we walk out of that apartment and we go down Dublin City Council and we say, look, we're homeless, and they then put us in a, a hotel costing a thousand a week or whatever, costs. Now, how do you actually do that? I mean, with your experience of, of housing people and so on, an experienced councillor, um, how do you actually walk out of a place where there's a roof over your head and go down to the city council and say I'm homeless? Well, first of all, George, I'm not saying that. Uh, no, I but mean, I'm expecting Well, what, what they're saying is that they believe that there's some anecdotal evidence. I, as I said at the beginning, I don't have such evidence. I don't know. And in a way, I find these sort of debates a little bit, um, I won't say tiresome, but a little bit sort of off the radar, because the real thing we need to be doing, George, is building housing. Well, there, there is a housing need, and you can have all the sort of policy debates and sort of side issue debates and sideline debates. 
the debate we should be having in Irish society is how do we start providing once again enough houses yes. for people to I, I get that uh, but but you can understand why why people many people listening to the program who are deeply hurt and upset at, at Irish citizens uh, and I presume most of them are uh, living in hotel accommodation they would be very upset if they thought those people who are in hotel accommodation as part of a ruse to push them up the housing list so therefore you might explain what actually happens? I mean, well, okay, how, well, well, how well, do you get a house? Okay, well, what, what, what happened was we had and have a massive homeless crisis. At the time he was in office, the foreign minister, Alan Kelly, said, look, whatever about living in, in, in adequate accommodation, it is really unacceptable that, that men, women and children are living in no accommodation, as in on the streets or in cars or yeah. in shelters. So he said, look, as an emergency measure, I want all local authorities to allocate 50% of all available units to people who have absolutely nowhere to live. And that did have a significant effect. I have figures here uh, from 2015 that 1,059 people were allocated housing in Dublin city area arising from that particular measure. And it did get a lot of people off the streets and it gave people some quality of, of, of housing. Unfortunately, the... What some people would say is that some people, in order to, if you want, jump the queue, skip the queue, uh, to cater for their pressing needs, made themselves homeless. I have no evidence of that all right, at, but at, at, at all. Yeah, so but they, the, went, they would have gone down to the council, according to the people who hold this view, which is not my view, yeah. they would have gone down to the council and they would have said, uh, we are homeless uh, and, you know, we want to get housed. And under the minister's directive, 50% of all units yeah. were made available to homeless. That's now stopped, and we're back to what I think is a fairly good system of allocations in Dublin City Council, which is called time on list. The longer you are on the list, the better chance you have. Okay, but explain to me also, therefore, let's let's get away from this argument of does somebody make themselves homeless or not. It, it would seem, and I know it isn't the case now that the Kelly Directive has lapsed, it would seem that the, the first people you give houses to are homeless people, but let's say there is a different system. Who are the other people on the list? If they're not homeless, they must be in a house or an apartment at the moment, no? Okay, well, the first thing to say is that I think the Alan Kelly direction was actually a good direction. Yes, uh, And it was an important thing at the time to deal with a pressing yeah. problem. The people who are on the housing list are largely people who are living in, in, in inadequate accommodation, maybe in their parents' houses. Maybe in some cases families are split up with children living with, with grandparents and, you know, yeah. the, the adults living, living elsewhere. There's a whole load of people on the, on, the house, on, on the housing list. And that was really compounded by the fact that during the Celtic Tiger years, social housing was essentially abandoned. And yeah. then during the lifetime of the last government, uh, up to the time that Alan Kelly came in, that we didn't have the money. Uh, money was then made available. I think the figure is $4.3 billion. Housing units are now being built again, but unfortunately, it does take time. Yeah, you can't you can't build. put houses up tomorrow unless you're getting prefabs. No, but I mean, but, 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 but I know we're getting off the point. Okay, no, but sorry, yeah. Councillor Lacey, uh, the thing is, 
which people who are not on these council lists or whatever have no understanding of how it works, and I'm trying to get there in a way. Well, it works um, based on presumably your... you interview somebody and you say, "Well, now why do you want a house?" And now when I say you, I mean Dublin City okay, Council. Okay, well, at, at a basic level, people yeah. who are under the uh, income limit, which I think off the top of my head is thirty thousand okay. per year, and I just forgot me because it changes. Oh, it's okay. Uh, they they apply. They're considered uh, for their suitability. They then go on a list, uh, and they rise gradually up up the list. Uh, but I mean, I was talking to somebody the other day who was eight hundred and twenty ninth, I think it was, for a house or a flat. That they're certainly not going to get that in the next year or two. Uh, so the list it goes according to need and according to time. Okay, a but a list is a fair system, is it not? Well, that's we've actually made the system fairer. Because under the old system that used to exist up to about three years ago, uh, and I became chairman of the housing committee, and it's one of the things I achieved during that time, you used to you used to actually improve your chances of getting housed by worsening your circumstances. So in other words, if you were living in a two-bedroom house and you had, say you were living in a three-bedroom house and you had four children, if you moved to a two-bedroom house, uh, your points went up because you were overcrowded. Yeah, sure. Now, that was sort of a crazy way to encourage adults to raise their children, and yet it was an understandable way for adults to behave. So we changed the system, so it now goes virtually strictly based on time on the list. So if you're if you're ahead of the next person and the place comes up, you will get the next place that comes up if it's suitable for your needs. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. I was Councillor Dermot Lacey of the Labour Party. Complicated, I hope you understood it. But then you get texts from somebody saying, this is true. They're getting a hotel room, signing in, and then going back to their parents or whatever and jumping the waiting list. It's a joke. See, that kind of anecdotal stuff, I actually don't believe. Um, uh, Bill Tormey says, I know people who were told by officials to go homeless to get housing up the queue. Bill Tommy knows of this directly. Him, a councillor. Well, that's uh, really interesting. I think we might we might follow up and take this a bit further. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie now, in 1989, almost 30 years ago, the United Nations recommended that July the 11th, today, should be the day that international communities observe World Population Day uh, in an attempt to highlight population issues and that the countries of the world would work to solve them together. I'm joined now by John Gibo, Professor Emeritus of Family Planning and Reproductive Health at University College London. Professor Gibo, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon to you, George. Uh, this is a bit of a hoary old uh, topic now. Wasn't there a fella called Malthus, I remember, a couple of hundred years ago, suggested we were going to run out of food and everything if we kept expanding? And of course, poor old Malthus was wrong. Well, maybe we're wrong too now. I think he was he was right, but people uh, didn't uh, look at the the whole story, uh, and he didn't know, for example, that uh, uh, the Green Revolution would come and we'd be able to provide much more food than was ever thought about before, or that contraception would come. Uh, he, you know, you can't expect him to know about these things. He didn't have a crystal ball. But what he was right about was that uh, you, your, your expansion of human numbers goes up 
uh, geometrically, meaning it's doubling over a certain number of years all the time, whereas your production of food eventually uh, uh, cannot keep pace on a finite planet. You know, you've only got a certain amount of land and, and water and fertilizers, etc., and there comes to be a limit. We, we live on a finite planet and sustainability is essential. Be that as it may, and, and I, of course, I don't argue with you because it's, it's self-evident, but nevertheless, if you take the most fertile countries, you know, the countries that are having the most children, there, I would guess, and I haven't got a list of them in front of me, but I would guess they are in uh, countries of uh, some kind of economic deprivation, whereas the countries like France and Germany, uh, who do not have those kind of birth rates, I'm you know, are in uh, a difficult position. So if you want to get this population thing solved, are you suggesting that we move all the people who have high birth rates over to the countries to where they have low birth rates? No, <laughs> not at all. I think that family planning is a wonderful invention, basically, um, and that uh, uh, if you give people the choice to use it, and that's the problem in the, most countries in the developing world, uh, and give them the supplies of the different methods, and remove the barriers which are often imposed by religion or culture or lack of education, etc., then women everywhere choose to have smaller families. And in fact, I could list you a huge number of countries which used to have six or seven kids as the average in the family, where it's come down to two without any coercion. Nobody's been forcing people. You just give them the choices and remove the barriers, and they decide to have smaller families. And that's a much better way forward. Okay, but uh, Professor Gable... ...stabilize the total population of the planet, which, as you know now, is 7,500 uh, million, and rising by about another billion every 12 years. And it just can't go on like that on a finite planet. Yeah, but uh, when you say no coercion, that ignores surely what happened in China, where there was coercion, and what we saw was, um, you know, the, the the murder of of girls for in, girl children. But I'm not, instance. I'm not, George. I'm not advocating that at okay, all. Right. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I think that's vile, absolutely vile. Uh, but I am saying uh, that uh, I can quote you so many countries from Thailand to Tunisia to Colombia to Cuba, uh, even to Kerala within, within India, although India itself is a huge problem of population. Kerala has a, a, a family size which is for replacement. And when you look at the countries where it's worked, you have given women choices. You've removed sexual violence, which is so prone to happen. You have educated women in the same way as, as men. Uh, and you have uh, uh, helped them to, to uh, through sex and relationship education, to know all the, all, all the things about family planning and so on. And when these are done as a human right, then it works. I hate the Chinese approach. And the silly thing is you don't need to do it, as I say, because other countries have succeeded without it. Yeah. What's more, can I just say yes. on the coercion thing, uh, I think the people who are often against uh, family planning, because they say it's always got to be coercive, and it, it, that isn't even true, they often seem to be accepting what I would call coercive pregnancy, because I think it's very unfair that so many women uh, in the world today go to bed with their partners tonight and, and simply, if they love them and they love them, are going to have a baby because they haven't got the choice to not have a baby. No, I, and, that, and that produces a coercive pregnancy, which I think is almost as bad, if not as bad, 
as coercive contraception yeah. would be. Now, you see, I, I agree absolutely on the issue of family planning and birth control. And I was appalled, for instance, at the Catholic Church's view in Africa where they handed out an abacus to, to, to people and said, you know, uh, you can't have sex when the red uh, thing is there, but when the little green one comes along, you can have sex. Of course, many of the African people just pushed all the green buttons across in the abacus and then promptly went away and had sex. So the Catholic <laughs> Church is attitude towards family planning it has no place in, in the 21st century problems we face. I would pray that um, our new Pope, who is a bit better than previous ones in these sort of areas, and has given us a little bit of permission with regard to Zika virus, I think, might, might, just might, if we all put the right sort of pressure on him and on the Vatican, come into the 21st century and, and start to allow family planning. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Modern, model family planning for the whole world and not just for the non-Catholics. But, but having said that, um, the, you can't prevent, uh, just if we take the simple sort of uh, uh, married situation or people living together or so on, yeah. the natural reaction for those people, family planning or no, is to have children. And I presume the Germans like children just as much as we do, but there aren't enough Germans. So what's your advice to Angela Merkel when she doesn't, she's not going to have enough Germans in 50 years, but India's going to have too many Indians? Well, uh, the the silly thing is, um, these people are worried about what you're talking about, which is called the dependency ratio. Uh, And they say, look, we've got too many old people and not enough young. If you increase the number of young, George, either by trying to give bonuses to couples that have larger families than they actually want, which is what seems to be the case when you try to do that in places like France and Germany, or by accepting huge numbers of migrants, whichever of those two things you do, think about it. You now have an even larger, uh, very uh, sort of young generation under 20. But folks, in just a matter of 80 years, you've got, therefore, even more old people and you therefore have to have even more young people to bounce yeah. that again. It's a recipe for perpetual population growth. Mm-hmm. And once again, I come back to the fact we have a finite planet. 70% of it is water. A lot of the rest of it is mountain or ice cap. We need to stabilize our numbers voluntarily just by giving people choices and removing the barriers. But I, I don't know the maths, and you do, but it seems to me mathematically, if if there are 7.4 billion uh, people yeah. on the earth now, and I don't know, let's say for argument's sake, 50 years ago there were 5 billion, isn't it a geometric progression that therefore population will increase? And, and although you have family planning and reproductive health and all that kind of stuff, the geometric progression just simply means that there are more kids. Not quite the case. It's true. If, you, if, if, if we stay as we are now, uh, the population of the planet is projected to be 28 billion by 2100. But if you have uh, family planning uh, at the availability level and with the removal of the barriers that we accept in Ireland or in, in Britain, then it's projected that we would stabilize at about 10 or 11 billion. Even then, that's more than now, George, but the reason for that is what we call population momentum. The fact that any country that used to have a lot of kids will now have a bulge of young people. And if that population bulge of young people even only has two or three kids, it takes 60 years after you get 
your uh, stabilization of family sizes before you finally actually get a stabilization of the Turk population. So you're right to that extent. There's a huge, it's like a super tanker trying to stop before it yeah. hits the rock. Oh, you've, got, you've got huge momentum, but nevertheless, once family sizes come down to uh, a mean of just over two, the world would stabilize. It really would. Just before you go, John, you could, of course, pop us all off on reaching 80. I mean, we've had we've had eighty good years. I mean, why are we so uh, why are we so uh, uh, wanting so many more years? Eighty is enough for anybody. Well, I'm I'm uh, of the view I don't mind living longer so long as I don't have too many disability years. I think it's the years before you finally pop off that are really worrying. Okay. And and a lot of the time we seem to be increasing longevity, but still leaving people with just the same amount of bad time with. Uh, with uh, disability, and, and, and that's not good, is it? No, not at all. Thank you for joining me and explaining it so clearly. The Professor Emeritus of Family Planning and Reproductive Health at University College London, uh, that's Professor John Gibo.